Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, it's a bit uh, intimidating to be in a place like this with all three services together. And then to have uh, the choir do such a magnificent job on the Hallelujah Chorus, and then know you're next. You know? There's something that uh, is quite intimidating about that, but it's also exhilarating in another real sense. We are here this morning to worship, and the person that we are worshiping is the person who is the King of Kings, and He's the Lord of Lords, and His kingdom will endure forever. You know, sometimes that does not necessarily sink in when you're in the midst of everyday life and in the pressures and the tussles and the pain of living. But the reality is, is that Jesus Christ is really alive. And we're going to be talking about him this morning, his birth and what it means to us. You know what I thought we would do? I thought we would stop just for a moment. We'd bow our heads and we would thank God for being the gracious God that He is to us. What unity and joy we have in a body like this. How thankful I am to be a part of it, to be able to even serve in it. But God's not finished yet. There are still exciting things to come. So let's thank Him, not only for what He has done, but what He will do. person here sees how truly exciting it is to be in a body such as this. To see your hand on us in this way is is really incredible. To see how you have been so faithful to us through the years, to see see how even as we've expanded with all the, the turmoil that could come with expansion, You have been faithful in our midst to keep us together, to keep us excited, to keep us envisioning new and even greater things, while at the same time ministering so faithfully to our spirits. Lord, we thank you for giving us Bill Price. We thank you for the 300 people who have said yes to spiritual employment. We thank you for those people who said it's more blessed to give than to receive and who reached deep and gave of their finances, monies that could have been spent on them, but now will be spent on you and your church. And Lord, these holy sacrifices we hold up to you, knowing that a man or money or commitments in and of themselves could never bear fruit apart from you drawing all that together in a special way. So we ask, Lord, that you might make us a great people of yourself, that we might be the people of God, that we might be able in the years to come to express the excellencies of you in all this world 
and in particular in this city, which needs so desperately to see the gift of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we pray that each individual here in these coming years might benefit by the ministry of this church and might grow and prosper in spirit. And Lord, we thank you that you have been faithful to us. We pray that your hand would be on us and that you would guide and protect us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Well, that's one special announcement, and now I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and let's look at the other special announcement. The one that was given 2,000 years ago to a young couple, when it was told to them that through their family, the whole world would be changed, and certainly it has been. Look with me in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Matthew. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her, mother, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, for our purposes this morning, what I would like to do is plant the flag on three phrases, three very special phrases. This is a very familiar Christmas story, and unfortunately, it becomes for most people just a story, but it's not. And in order to help pull out this story into reality, I want to do a bit of reflection around these three special phrases. The first is found in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. My question to you is, was it? Was the birth of Jesus Christ as Matthew described? You know, he writes as one in a simplistic way of just wanting to give you an account of the events that took place. But we must ask ourselves, did the birth of Jesus Christ follow just this way? Did it really happen this way? 
Or is this account written by this tax gatherer, this business reject, was it just simply the figment of his overzealous and religious imagination? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Was it? Did it occur really this way? Is this a historical statement? Or is it a made-up myth? You know, in a world that is becoming increasingly secular in its orientation, what many theologians call a post-Christian era for our country in the world, a world that novelist Thomas Wolfe says is more concerned today about freedom from religion than our founding fathers were when they first landed on our shores when they were concerned about freedom of religion. Is this a historical account? These are important questions, especially for those who are here in our audience who are under 25 years of age. How many here are under 25? Just let me just see your hands for a You know, this morning's message is aimed particularly at you if you are under 25. Because you have grown up in an era where in schools and in public, the name and the mention of Christianity and of Jesus Christ is being slowly withdrawn and is said to be only worth being in private circles, not in public circles. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Was it? Thomas Jefferson, one of the greatest figures of American history, didn't think so. Whether you know this or not, but during his life, Jefferson was an avid reader of the New Testament. He was a deist. And over a period of time, Jefferson took his scissors and cut out all the events in the New Testament in the life of Christ that he thought were historically unreliable. One of the first pages of his new New Testament to be cut away was Matthew chapter 1. He eliminates the account of this birth of Jesus Christ. His book that was later published and spread all over the continental United States and Europe was entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus Christ. And it begins with Jesus being a carpenter's son and his book ends with the stone being rolled over the hole of Jesus' tomb. That's how it ends. You know, that book is being published for the first time this year. It's being published by a group of ministers. And the reason it's being published by a group of ministers is because 60% of the seminary graduates of the seminaries in America today do not believe in this account. They believe it is historically unreliable. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Was it? You know, I have a growing fear that many young people who do not take the time to reflect, who do not take the time to investigate the evidence that is really there, will in time grow up in this secular world and find that their faith has been subtly separated from its historic foundations. Christianity is a historic 
religion. And if it is separated from its historic moorings, then what eventually occurs is that Jesus Christ becomes more and more a sentimental story that you consider during the holidays than he does a historic person that must be reckoned with every day. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Is Matthew writing as a historian? Is he writing as an eyewitness? Is he saying it really happened this way? Or is he saying once upon a time in a land far away and he's just offering to us a fairy tale? You know, there's something about history and about being around history, about seeing real places and real events. No matter how much you believe something, when you're really there, it goes from your head down into your heart and it becomes a conviction of life. I remember my first real experience in that regard, spiritually speaking, when I took a tour of Israel. And as we were going up and down the countryside of Israel, we stopped, our little motorcade stopped in the Valley Elam, north of Jerusalem. And we got out and we stood there in this forested hillside and there was a ridge on one side and a ridge on the other side on which we stood. And a friend of mine who had taken us to Israel said, I'd like to read 1 Samuel 17. Now some of you all remember that is the account of David and Goliath. Some story in the past. So we began to read that. And it talked about how the Philistines lined up on one side of the valley Elah to the north and we were on the south. And I looked over the other side and there was this valley and there was this hillside. And he said, the armies of Israel camped to the south of the valley Elah. And there we stood on the south. Suddenly it began to dawn on me, this is a real place. And it talked about the flat plain between these two ridges. And I looked and there was a flat plain. And it talked about a brook that ran through the flat plain and there was a brook. And it said that David went out and he picked up five smooth stones. So I walked out and I looked in the brook and there were a million little stones about this big, circular, perfectly smooth. And suddenly, even though I believed it, it took on a whole new dimension. This isn't just a story. This is reality. There was really a Goliath and truly a David. He was king. You can talk in a classroom like some of you who are students in the university about whether man is basically good or basically evil. But when you walk through the death camp of Auschwitz and you touch the lamps that are made of Jewish skin and you feel the mattresses that are stuffed with human hair, the argument, the contemplation, the debate ends, doesn't it? Because of history. Nobody has to tell me whether man is basically good or not. Man is evil. Man is in great need. Because history lets us feel those things in ways nothing else could. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ, it, it was as follows, Matthew says. You know, there are many people in our world today who would tell you, professors, who would tell you that Jesus Christ, it's even questionable whether he even lived or not, whether he was even a real historical person. And if you're not around these places where you can gather this evidence, it's so easy to come to that conclusion thinking, yeah, maybe he just was made up. Maybe it was just the result of Christians wanting us to believe something so that they could have hope. Some people would even suggest that the only record that we have of Jesus Christ is right here in this book, a Bible. How foolish to come to that kind of conclusion. There is more truth. There is more evidence. There is more history to the life of Jesus Christ than most of the central figures that are written in your history textbooks. It would take six months to compile up here all the evidence and all the mention of Jesus Christ from secular authorities that he really was alive on planet Earth. Here are just some of the secular writers and historians of the first and second century. People who were within earshot of the life of Jesus Christ. The great Roman historian Tacitus, his fellow historian Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Epictetus, Lucian, Aristides, the Jewish historian Josephus, Galenius, Lapidius, Labinius, and Marcellinus. And there were all kinds of works by people who hated Christians who wrote of them, and never once did any of those men ever once suggest that Jesus Christ was a fairy tale. They all dealt with him and his followers as if they were real people. For instance, I mentioned Tacitus, the Roman historian in 112 AD, in discussing Nero's blaming of Christians for burning the city of Rome, he says this, Nero falsely charged with the guilt the persons called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of Christianity, that's what they called him, Christus, not Christ, was put to death by Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. But this pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only in Judea, but this mischief has broken out in our city of Rome as well. Lucian called Jesus the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced a new cult into the world. Now these are not Christian writers. These are secular writers. The Jewish historian Josephus said, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, and it would be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of many wonderful works. Evidently, the life and the miracles of Jesus Christ were so evident as you study through these historical writers of the first and second century, they constantly make mention of Jesus and the record of his life in the archives in Rome. That Pontius Pilate put together a record of the events and the miracles of Jesus' life and actually put them in the archives of Rome. And so you get different writers writing to Caesar and saying to Caesar, just check the records. Did you know we have that? 
Justin Martyr, for instance, he writes Empress, Emperor Pius in 150 AD, and he says to Emperor Pius, Jesus performed these miracles, and you may be easily satisfied with this fact from the acts of Pontius Pilate in the imperial archives. Is that not impressive? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. You know, one writer in 53 AD tried to explain the darkness over Palestine. He tried to tell us that it was an eclipse of the sun. And yet we know that Jesus was crucified at Passover. And Passover is the time of the full moon. And you can ask any astronomer. You can't have an eclipse with a full moon. But we have a writer in 53 AD who is trying to explain by naturalistic causes a historical event that he understood in his day. Is there any hint from the historical record, from the archives of history, that Jesus was only a rumor, a myth? No. Jesus was a real man. He lived in real history. And he's a person who must be reckoned with one way or the other. Historian J. Gilchrist Larson says, the historical evidences of Christ's existence are so much greater than those in support of any other event in ancient history that no candid scholar could reject them without also renouncing his belief in every event recorded in ancient history. The world-renowned scholar F.F. Bruce comments, the historicity of Christ is as axiomatic for the unbiased historian as the historicity of Julius Caesar. Dr. Philip Schaff from Yale University, one of the greatest and most eminent historians that America has ever known, concluded, the person of Christ is to me the greatest and surest of all facts, more sure than my own personal existence. Christianity is the only religion in the world that is anchored in such historic evidences. No one who has disbelieved in Jesus Christ, even here this morning, has disbelieved in Christ because there was no evidence for his existence. No one has ever disbelieved because there was not proof available for his faith to hang on to. No one. In fact, history not only confirms the life of Jesus Christ, but it exalts it by the way it dates history. Everything before his birth, B.C., everything after his birth in the year of our Lord. Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. He doesn't seem like he has an ax to grind. He doesn't seem like he has a scheme to sell. He just sounds like a person who was there, and he wants you to know that Jesus was real. Well, it was a real birth that launched a real life. It was also a unique kind of birth by the second phrase we're going to look at here for a moment. 
It was a unique kind of birth and it led to a unique kind of life. Notice in verse 20, it says that the angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, don't be afraid, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You know, history has been peppered with all kinds of unique births. You pull out your Guinness World Book of Records, you find all kinds of funny statements about births from time to time. The smallest birth that has ever occurred, at least on record, was one to Marie Chapman in England in 1938. Her baby was 10 ounces. The largest baby on record was to Anna Bates in America in 1879. Her baby weighed in at 23 pounds, 12 ounces. Two feet, six inches long, it says. Now, I'm just reporting the record. The most births by one woman was one found in Russia, 69 births between the years 1725 and 1765. Now, I'm sure certain people would be skeptical over that as well. But one we do know is the birth that occurred in 1978, the first externally conceived infant, Louise Brown, test tube baby. That was a miracle. But it didn't, it pales in comparison to the miracle that's being described here. The miracle described here is the first internally conceived child of the Holy Spirit. Now, is Matthew making that up as well? I know there are skeptics who would scoff and jeer and call Matthew's account of a baby being born of the Holy Spirit lunacy, a concoction for simple minds. But you know, let's examine the evidence because there is evidence here as well. Because you would expect a life that was conceived of the Holy Spirit to then go on and be a unique kind of lifestyle. And certainly it was. How does the life of Jesus compare with other men? If I, if I may quote Philip Shaft again from Yale, he says, all human greatness loses its luster on closer inspection. But Christ's character grows more pure, more sacred, and more lovely the better we get to know Him. The whole range of history and even fiction furnishes no parallel to the life of Jesus Christ. Did you know all men have clay feet? All great men have great blemishes. It only takes a historian a short amount of time to pull off the socks and shoes of great men and expose their flaws and their blemishes. Certainly we have had, even recently, a number of great people that we would consider great be tarnished by certain revelations about them. Ralph Abernathy brought Martin Luther King closer to earth by his revelations. Certainly Martin Luther King was a great man, but he also had great flaws. Some who follow the field of journalism will notice even this week in your newspapers the account of H.L. Mencken, 
who was supposed to be this great journalist that journalists revered and admired. He died a number of years ago, and 25 years later, they opened his diary. And as they read about what he thought and what he believed, they were shocked and saddened because they found that this great journalist privately embraced many of the bigotries that he publicly, uh, publicly denounced. And suddenly, this great man was brought back to earth. He was of clay. Some of you remember in the Olympics a few years ago, watching Nadia Comaneci, or Comaneci, do these great acrobatic moves on the parallel bars. And for the first time in Olympic history, scored a perfect 10. But if you've been reading about her life recently in the newspaper, she's anything but a 10. Clay feet. But when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, draw it real close. Bring your best microscope. Bring your sharpest critics. Because you will conclude what Pilate concluded when he examined the evidence of Jesus' life 2,000 years ago. You will say, I find no fault in him. His life was incomparable. It was awesome. It was incredible. It was sinless. It was perfectly pure. It was, he was the wisest of the wise. The most gracious of those who were gracious. He was the strongest of the strong. He was the greatest who ever lived. And men who look at the life of Jesus Christ cannot explain his character apart from this simple tax gatherer's phrase listed in Matthew chapter 1 when he says he was conceived of the great Orientalist, the linguist, the French scholar said as he studied the life of Jesus. Jesus Christ is a man of colossal dimension. Whatever may be the surprises of the future, Jesus Christ will never be surpassed. John Stuart would come to the same conclusion. John Stuart Mill, who some say was the most intelligent man who ever lived, he called Jesus the God of all humanity. And Napoleon Bonaparte probably said it best. Here was a man who conquered the whole world. Here was a man who was a brilliant thinker as well as a military strategist. And yet confined in defeat, to the island of St. Helena, he sat and he read the scriptures every day. And at the end of his life, he said, I know men, and Jesus Christ was not a man. Who could live this kind of life if he were born of man? The answer is no one. What we see on these pages in the book of Matthew is the statement of reality. It's the statement of the way things really are. It's the statement of a unique life, a life lived far above any other life. And anyone who would really investigate the life of Christ would come to the same conclusion. It's so pure. It's so right. It's so consistent. It is a 10. 
in the midst of billions and billions and billions of ones. And you would think that we would look at it and we would teach it and we would emulate it in every institution of higher learning. Instead, we try to rid ourselves of any thought or remembrance. And we have pseudo-intellectuals who would try to encourage our young that Jesus Christ not only was not a man, Jesus Christ never existed. The only way to explain the life of Christ by the evidence that we have is by explaining it the way the angel did here in verse 20. That which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was real historically. Jesus was incomparable personally. But then finally the last phrase in verse 21, Jesus was also confronting spiritually. Notice in verse 21, the angel says, and he will save his people from their sins. This is where the controversy begins. In fact, I doubt people would have any problem with Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ had not come and told us that he has a problem with us. That's where the rub comes. That's where the sting is. He kept telling people that they were unacceptable. He kept telling people that they could never really be fulfilled in this life as they were. He kept telling them that they had a problem and he called that problem sin. And then he said, and I am the only one who can save you from that sin. The Jews of Jesus' day had a very difficult time, not with the man and not with his works. They had a difficult time with his message that he would save them from their sin. You see, in the first century, the Jew thought his problem was Rome. Not him, Rome. And that if he could get Rome off his back, and if he could quit paying taxes to Rome, then life would even out. It'd be okay. We could get our free country back. We could be a self-determining free people again. And our glory and our happiness and our fulfillment, it would return to us. But Jesus said, that's not the problem. The problem is not Rome. The problem is you. It's your sin. It's your alienation from God, your spiritual emptiness. That is the problem, and that's what made him so controversial. Even as the angel announces this, the controversy would begin. Well, those statements that he made to those people were easily overlooked because of the Roman oppression. But they're not easily overlooked today. The reason is, is because we are free people. We have no oppression, politically speaking. We are free. We are wealthy. We are prosperous. 
We can do what we want. We have all kinds of opportunities. And yet, we still feel empty. Some of you are here this morning, and life is a drag. The Jew of the first century would have killed himself to have what you have. And yet, now that you have it, you recognize it's not all that it was cracked up to be. Jesus already knew that. He was the wisest of the wise. And he could penetrate through those kind of mirages and tell you, once you have it all, it still won't be enough. Because life was not constructed that way. There's more. And so we find ourselves in this great country, as free as it is, with all that we have, still feeling oppressed, still thinking if we could just get over this, or if we could just get rid of that, that somehow, in our own concoction of fantasy, that we would be happy. And Jesus says, no, the problem is not out there, my friend. The problem is here. The problem is your sin. See, the answer to life is not found in my rotten marriage and getting that over with. Freeing myself up is not by getting married and ending my loneliness. Being really fulfilled is not getting out of debt or getting over my illness or getting through my addiction or any of those things. That's what makes Jesus so controversial. He says that the problem is your sin, your alienation, your unwillingness to come to Him as the Savior of the world. So the problem is not out there. The problem is myself. And wise men finally figure that out over time. You know, that is still a controversial statement. That statement still stings, and even as I say it, it still stings me because I don't want to believe it. I want to live in fantasy, thinking that the problems are elsewhere. That statement is still just as controversial. It's why our world does not honor the greatest, purest, wisest, and holiest man that ever lived. And do you think everyone would do that? But our world doesn't because it can't stand what he says about us. It wants to believe in some way and somehow that our problems are educational or social or racial or sexual or whatever else, but they're spiritual. And the spirit lives in us. And so in the first century, Jesus drove people to two extremes. This great man who really lived the greatest life that was ever lived, he drives people through his statements, his message, to two extremes. And we know what they were. Some received him as God. Others killed him as a liar. And it's no different today. You either love him are you hating? He drives you to those two conclusions. Everyone, secular or sacred, would say that Jesus Christ has had more impact on the human race for good than any man 
who has ever lived. And yet he drives those very same men to curse him and use him as a slang term. Until they finally admit that he's right about the problem. And then rather than curse in his name, they pray in his name. Don't they? Jesus drives you to those conclusions. He knows that you'll never be happier, never feel more fulfilled, never be more in sync with life than when you're being saved from yourself. Just saved from yourself, your sin. You'll never be any freer than that, regardless of your condition, whether you have a lot of money this morning or you don't. Whether things are going well for you or you aren't, whether you're healthy or you're sick, you'll never feel any better in any of those conditions than when you're being delivered from yourself. And we know the opposite is just as true. You can have it all and sin will ruin it. Jesus, it said, came to save us from our sins. You know, recently I read a Gallup poll. Bill Parkinson mentioned the Gallup poll that was taken, and it showed how many people in America say that they are Christians. It's an enormous percentage. And those same polls show how little difference has been made in all those people who claim to be Christians. Well, you know, I've had the opportunity to be with George Gallup, and he has done a new poll, so to speak. He is a very fervent Christian, and he said something's wrong here, so he began to put the test to the population and ask certain penetrating questions so that he could, in some way, delineate out of that great, great group of people who name the name of Christ as opposed, or find in that group of people, those who are really living the life of Christ. And he's been able to do that. And he said in the American population, less than 10% of the American population really has what he calls a deep faith. But you know what he found out about those people? They were all, they were throughout all different socioeconomic and racial lines. But those people that he could, in, in a forthcoming book, by the way, The Saints Among Us, which he will publish, he points out that as he talked to those people and looked at their lives, that though they were from all different walks of life, that they were the happiest people in America. Far happier, he said, than the rest of the general population. Over and away, more fulfilled than the rest of the population. And you know why? Because they were being saved from their sins. See, that's what a deep faith is. A deep faith is where you finally come to the place where you begin to interact in a real aggressive way, not with the problems out there, but with the problem in here. And what you'll find is you've got a Savior who will deliver you. You know, that's what I found from my own life. I saw a bumper sticker this week, and the bumper sticker read this way. My children saved me from toxic self-absorption. 
And I laughed at that because as a parent, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? I mean, there's something about children that they're going to be in your midst that forces you, or at least they demand of you, that you not focus on yourself. But as I looked at that, what came to me in all candor in that moment is I thought, you know, that would be a great epitaph over my tombstone, personally. Except it would read this way. Jesus Christ saved me from toxic self-absorption. Because when I look at my life, I don't see beauty, and I don't see wisdom, and I don't see truth, and I don't see purpose, and I don't see selflessness. I see toxic self-absorption. And who will save me from that? Well, Jesus Christ. And He has really done that. When I was a young man, free-falling into the abyss of me, myself, and I, He pulled me out of that abyss. I've been able, unfortunately, to watch my other friends over the years. Some of you have been able to watch yours as well. Who have lived a life where they said, that's going to save me. Focusing on me. Living for me. Indulging me. But now 20 years have come and gone since I was caught in the midst of that free fall. And while I am buoyed up, they have perished. While my life has taken on new dimensions, certainly nowhere where they should be, even now, but their life has taken on chaotic dimensions. Was I smart enough to be married? No. Was I smart enough to have children? No. Do I know how to be pure? No. And even if I did, could I? No. Do I know how to measure my priorities? No. Do I know how to balance my work? No. Do I have any real substantial hope that I can give to my life, myself? No. Do I know how to handle myself in personal relationships? No. Do I know how to handle confrontation? No. Do I know how to say I'm sorry? No. Do I know how to live? No. That's sin. But I've been saved. Changed. People say, gosh, you look like you got a good marriage. And I think I have a good marriage. But I owe it all to a real man who was really born and who lived a real life, a ten. I owe it all to him. I look at my checkbook. I think about my finances. I think about what I didn't have growing up. I think about what I couldn't do if I was living for self. I look at my finances and I say, they're not too bad. But before I take credit, I realize I went all to a man who really lived, who was really born, and who gave himself for me. 
When I make a decision, I think, I couldn't make this decision this way if it was not for Jesus Christ. When I think about my personal life, I'd say, I wouldn't really live this way if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has changed me. And every success and every satisfaction and every fulfillment that I have experienced in my life, relationally, personally, vocationally, I went all to Jesus Christ, the real Savior of the world. What about you? What about you? Are you here this morning thinking of Jesus and Christmas as just a sentimental time where you're going to pay him a little bit of acknowledgement. But it probably was just a once upon a time in a far off land kind of thing. Or have you reckoned yourself with the truest man who ever lived? The man whose existence is more sure than yours. It would be a mistake if we didn't close this service and give those who are not there yet an opportunity to meet the God that I have just talked about. You see, I've met men, and Jesus Christ is no man. He is Emmanuel. Would you bow with me in prayer? And if you are here this morning and your heart feels empty in the midst of plenty, or you feel brokenhearted because your world has come falling down around you, or you're just drifting through life and everybody is telling you it's okay, but deep in your soul, it's not okay. I have a gift for you. And that gift is Jesus Christ himself. He said, if any man would come unto me, I will not cast him away. He said, if any man would believe in me, I will give him eternal life. He said, if any man or woman would confess his or her sin, I will forgive him. And I'll promise him a new life, for I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. You can have that life simply by saying this prayer. Lord Jesus, I didn't know that you were as real as you really are. And Lord Jesus, if you are really who you say you are, I need you in me to save me from my sin, to give me a new life. All the world has promised me things, but they're not enough. 
And now today, I hear that they will never be enough. That inside me is a vacuum that cannot be filled by anything, but only by a special someone that's you. So Jesus, come into me and save me. Father, for those who have uttered that prayer of faith, I pray even now that they might sense your deliverance of them. I pray that you might give them courage to share that decision with a friend who brought them or to a family member. Lord, this is what the church is all about. Even though we talked in the beginning about buildings and new staff and all those things that could help advance your cause, Christianity in the end is nothing more than Jesus Christ and knowing him personally. I pray no one would leave in this moment without having encountered him. Wise men still see you. Lord, thank you for this time, this celebration. And I pray that your name has been honored. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.